In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Hello, uh, welcome to the Sahapod Stories and Humanitarian Action. I have a great guest for you today. Before I introduce him, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, like, comment, and share this video if you enjoy it. My guest today is Samia Elwari, an Egyptian British national and an expert on conflict, humanitarian action, and war to peace transitions, with a particular focus on the Middle East and Latin America region. Samia is currently working as the Deputy Humanitarian Coordinator and Head of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, in Caracas, Venezuela. OCHA is the part of the United Nations Secretariat responsible for bringing together humanitarian actors to ensure a coherent response to emergencies. Samia has held several positions within OCHA. These include Deputy Head of Office in Damascus, Syria and Managing Field Coordination and Humanitarian Access in Sana'a, Yemen. He also oversaw the Emergency Response and Partnership Portfolio of the Ocha Regional Office for the Middle East and North Africa. Prior to joining Ocha, Samia was a research fellow at the Humanitarian Policy Group Overseas Development Institute, an independent think tank focusing on research and policy advice. His main area of research focused on humanitarian response in conflict-affected settings. He has also experience in promoting human rights in the extractive industry, mainly in Colombia and Democratic Republic of Congo. He has an, a master's in violence, conflict and development from the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. Welcome to the show, Samia. How are you? Thank you. It's not very well, thank you. No, and thank you for, for making the time. I also know you're very, very busy, so I'm really grateful. Um, actually, as I was reading your biography, uh, there's a couple of, of uh, things from your past career before which I'd like to actually ask you about. For example, your work um, in promoting human rights in the extractive industry men in Colombia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. What was that like? What is it you were doing in that role? So this was actually an experience that I had with uh, a couple of NGOs. One was called uh, Global Witness uh, and another was called International Alert. Uh, and both looked at the issues from a different perspective. Global Witness was more of an advocacy organization. So we were doing uh, research around how um, the extraction of, uh, of certain mining could be diamonds, it could be gold, it could be coltan, um, were essentially impacting human rights in, in, in conflict settings. Um, and with International Alert, the work was more around working with different organizations to try to kind of promote uh, peace building uh, in these kind of difficult environments. So for Colombia, 
We worked a lot with oil companies and we also worked a lot with civil society organizations. And the idea was where those companies were operating in difficult kind of conflict environments um, to see how we could make sure that they had uh, strict human rights standards applied in those contexts. And for that to happen, there needed to be a dialogue with, uh, with civil society actors, with NGOs. And so the organization was a really interesting link between uh, those big companies, some international multi, you know, multinational companies and others mm-hmm. uh, and state-owned companies, and then with local um, community organizations. So really it was trying to build a bridge and having a conversation. So those activities, which I think historically have had such a negative impact on human rights, you know, could actually have a more positive role in society. Right. Um, no, and you're still, that was... Um in uh, Colombia and I know you know again in your bio you've worked a lot in the region and you're currently in Venezuela and what does your day look like in Venezuela? So Venezuela is uh, the daily work is is a little bit of a roller coaster in the sense that things here can uh, can change very quickly uh, especially on the on the on the political side uh, which um, creates and sometimes restricts you know the space that we have to to operate now humanitarian action is quite sensitive in in mm-hmm. venezuela i mean it's seen as something that's quite political not everyone agrees on the the needs that there are in the country um, you know there's some uh, concerns around the role that some organizations might have in case they have any kind of more political objectives as well so it's a, it's a very difficult sensitive context to navigate and we have to be very sensitive around our relationships with a whole host of stakeholders from uh, community leaders to humanitarian organizations to government officials to opposition figures to donors so really my day-to-day role is to try to navigate a little bit those relationships in order to allow the space for the different organizations to 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 operate Um, and so really creating an understanding of the work that we do, um, trying to understand that we abide by humanitarian principles, that are principles of humanity, neutrality, impartiality, and independence, that we're not here for any other kind of political purpose, um, but also to demonstrate our value added on uh, on the ground in terms of you know supporting and helping communities in times of need. So really, the it's, it's actually a lot of diplomatic work, um, which then facilitates the space for our colleagues to do the more operational work. Right. And I'm going to come back to you uh, in a few minutes to just ask you a lot more about the humanitarian principles, neutrality, humanitarian space, because I also know you've done a lot of research in in that area. But before I do that, um, what do you enjoy most about your, your job? It could be this job or any of your other humanitarian roles. I think one aspect is being able to to travel to to different countries to be able to engage with you know different uh, people from different backgrounds um, and I think you know it's really it's a learning process I think you know when when you when you travel to to many different humanitarian contexts I mean you really understand a lot better you know what's what's happening. Uh, the role that you know the humanitarian organizations or the UN system plays in that context uh, and you know trying to shape a little bit how 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 you can support uh, the, the, the people that are most in need um, so for me it's really a privilege to be able to, to travel to different countries often it's seeing countries that you know are 
going through difficult periods. Um, right. So whether that's you know uh, uh, an open conflict, um, a displacement crisis, uh, political instability, um, but at the same time, I think you know being able to engage with people, you know, when they're in difficult moments, I think is also important. I think it's important right. for them that, you know, we don't only engage when things are going well, but also engage when, when things aren't going so well. And I think that that issue of solidarity and that support, I think, is uh, is key. So I really think I'm in a privileged position to, to be able to, to support uh, many of these countries um, in times of need. And, and, and I think, you know, being able to, to, to visit those countries and engage with really extremely committed people and individuals, then I think that's, uh, that's definitely what I enjoy most. Um, and um, again, you know, you mentioned solidarity, support and commitment, and I'm hoping that these uh, points will come back to you, especially when we talk about uh, the book that we are going to discuss. Uh, because I think also, you know, creating solidarity around humanitarian needs across the global world is something that is quite important for all of us as humanitarian workers. Um, think about, you know, what, what one of your greatest professional achievement that you could share. What would that be? <clears throat> I would say one of the greatest achievements would be working in Syria. Um, and there's a, an area of Syria uh, in the south of the country uh, um, on the border with Jordan where there's uh, quite a large displacement camp, around 50,000 people at the time. Um, and it was very difficult to, to access those, uh, that population um, because mm -hmm. of a variety of, of complexities. One, that it was a demilitarized U.S. zone. Uh, you needed permission from a number of different uh, military and civilian actors to arrive there. There was the presence of, uh, of non-state armed groups. Um, so there was a lot of challenges in order to get uh, assistance there. But really, after a year and a half of trying and you know, lots of diplomatic efforts, both locally but also at the international level, and we finally uh, managed to get the permission to, 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 to reach that population. So mm -hmm. really, my, my role was in charge, to be in charge of organizing a, a very large humanitarian convoy to that, uh, to that area. We had roughly around 150 trucks of assistance. Um, and we were able to spend around 10 days in the, in the camp providing assistance uh, to the people in need there, but also um, carrying out a survey to understand what people's intentions were to look about, you know, what kind of solution could be found uh, for the people there that, you know, that, that wanted to leave. Um, so I think because of how long it took in order to to, to, to get the permission to, to arrange the convoy. And then, you know, finally arriving and after a year of also speaking with the community leaders, being able to meet them in person, you know, being able to provide them with, with assistance. Um, but also realizing that, you know, for them, one of the, the biggest supports that we were providing was actually turning up, you know. And I think mm -hmm. for them, you know, being, okay, we're not forgotten, that there is solidarity um, and that gives us hope for, for to continue kind of, you know, resisting and, and finding a solution to our, our, our difficult situation, for me, it was very touching. And I think, you know, it, often when we talk about humanitarian assistance, we often focus on the material aspect. Okay, did we provide water? Right. Did we provide food? Did we provide shelter, etc.? And I think there's a very kind of, you know, there's a very more personal relationship, which is about human dignity, which is about hope, which is about solidarity, which I think is 
is, is very important and, and I think it's captured in the principle of humanity. We often speak of the neutrality, impartiality, independence aspect more. And sometimes we forget a little bit about the humanity. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think we can contribute most and I think is often most important for, for the people that we're aiming to, to, to support is this issue of, of, of solidarity, you know? And, and I think the more that we can kind of promote solidarity between people on this basis of, of humanness and human dignity, I think we can slowly, slowly make the world a better place. I like that. I like that vision very much. And, um, and again, I hope we can really talk about more about that also when we talk about uh, stories, because I think, um, how do we connect as human beings and how do we relate to each other and how do we see each other as you know another fellow human that maybe needs a hand at some point in in life but this so what is the humanitarian in what is when you come out the humanitarian principles you know like explain to me what is the humanitarian principle of humanity what does that mean and so for me, it's essentially this concept that, you know, when other people based on their humanness are in difficult situations that, you know, we should, you know, give them our, our attention and we should give them our, our support. So the idea that, you know, if uh, there is a humanitarian crisis or there's a humanitarian uh, emergency in, in a different country, then, you know, we should be providing those people with support, um, right. you know, and that should start locally in, 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 in the community, uh, in the city, in, by the local authorities, by the national government. I mean, those are, are, are those that can provide that initial support and have the responsibility to, to do so. But, you know, in situations where, you know, they don't have the capacity or there isn't the will to do it, then I think there's a, a global responsibility to also provide uh, provide support. And I think really the, the principle of humanity is the essence that right. you know, we need to be there, we need to be providing support um, um, to people in need or create the conditions for also people to find solutions to their own situation and uh, and and problems, so uh, I think that's really the essence of uh, of humanity. Um, and I think if you look at the principles, you know, humanity, um, where it commands attention to to all people, uh, and then impartiality, which is about responding to 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 people in need uh, without any discrimination. Uh, are, are goals in and of themselves. I mean, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're what we aim to, to achieve, you know, help the people that are most in need in these difficult contexts. When you look at the other principles, such as neutrality and independence, I mean, they're not necessarily good in and of themselves. Right. It's not good to be neutral because, you know, it's a, it's, it's a positive act to be, but more the tools, right. you know, and in order to be able to operate in a conflict context where, there might be suspicions around humanitarian actors. There might be concerns around, you know, political agendas. Then it's important to demonstrate that you're an independent actor, that you're a neutral actor, in order to facilitate the acceptance and allow you to to work in that context. Um, so they're tools in order to implement the other principles which are around, you know, humanity and and, and helping people um, without any kind of discrimination and only based on need. Right. Um, neutrality and is it possible to be neutral? I mean, I think it's possible to be neutral in terms of taking sides in a, in a conflict. You know, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really important to be neutral as well. 
because I mean I think as soon as you're seen to be uh, having a partisan agenda or to be closer to, to, to one side than another in a, in, in a conflict situation or, or, or with actors that have a stake in that conflict, I think that can really jeopardize the, the, the work that we do. Um, but I think where it's difficult to be neutral is in the face of human suffering. Um, and I think for, for, for us, we're, we're not expected to be neutral in the face of human suffering. And, 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 you know, the expectation is that, you know, when there is human suffering, that action should be taken. Um, and so I think if we can distinguish right. between neutrality as in taking sides and neutrality between inaction, right. then I think that that's where we should make a difference. Right. No, it's it's just one of those uh, questions, and also there's quite a lot of, as you know, Sami as well. There's a lot of uh, essays and articles, I guess, that really question whether you know we can be neutral. But I like what you say about being not being neutral in in in, in the face of suffering. Um, and I guess we are already talking about really humanitarian space in many ways, or you know, uh, and. As I mentioned earlier, you've done a lot of research on humanitarian in yeah on humanitarian space, and maybe my first question, and it's also linked to the humanitarian principles that you already um, we already speaking about. What is this concept of humanitarian space? So uh, the, the concept of humanitarian space and, and, and the research that we did was was really around you know how humanitarian organizations are able to operate in different in different conflict contexts yeah. um, but also about how people are able to uh, access uh, relief and protection in these different contexts as well um, and for us um, the reason why we carried out that research was a sense that when we spoke about humanitarian space most organizations talked about that space shrinking um, saying that you know over the last you know twenty years thirty years you know it's more difficult for humanitarian organisations to to operate in conflict contexts. We're seeing an increase in the number of aid workers that have been attacked or killed. Um, that you know in many contexts uh, you know non-state armed groups or, or even strong governments um, are not willing to accept the work of humanitarian uh, of humanitarian actors. So a real sense that. You know, humanitarianism in a way was is 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 under attack. Mm -hmm. and, you know, inciting examples like Somalia or, or Afghanistan or, or Iraq, where the unfortunately you know aid workers have uh, have been killed or attacked, um, but often also you know powerful Western countries have also used humanitarian assistance to promote their their, their political agendas. Um, so we questioned that okay. sense of humanitarian space yeah. shrinking. So we didn't question the fact that all of those challenges were happening yeah. in humanitarian context, but we questioned the idea that the space was shrinking. And in fact, we argued that the humanitarian space was expanding. And if you look at it historically, during the Cold War, most humanitarian organizations would operate in refugee contexts. So weren't operating inside conflict zones, but more dealing with the, the, the fallout mm -hmm. of conflicts, which is large-scale uh, displacement and, and refugee situations. Um, and after the Cold War, we found that humanitarian organizations were trying more and more to operate in conflict context. So, and there's more humanitarian organizations, there's been more funding than ever for mm -hmm. humanitarian response. Um, we're operating in more contexts inside mm -hmm. conflict zones. So you could argue that, in fact, humanitarian space is expanding. Right. But what happens is that when you expand into very difficult environments, then often the consequences is that, that you are 
um, somehow co-opted by political agendas. You can be attacked because you're not accepted or because you're in more difficult or insecure environments, etc. And for us, it was important to make the distinction, I mean, not just as an academic exercise, but we felt that there was actually some very practical implications. And the practical implications is that, you know, if the, the problems that humanitarian uh, organizations encounter are because of external factors that, you know, strong governments uh, are not allowing me to, to operate, uh, non-state armed groups are uh, attacking uh, humanitarian workers, um, you know, donors are co-opting what we're doing in terms of, um, of political agendas, mm -hmm. then it's always... It, it, the focus is on the outside and not the focus is not on the inside. Right. But if we actually focus on the inside, in fact, say, you know, this has become a huge industry. Um, the resources are controlled by a small group of organizations from the UN system and from big international NGOs. Um, most of the money that comes into the humanitarian sector comes from Western donors that, you know, that are not separate from different political agendas in these, uh, in these contexts. And often when we work in these political um, conflict contexts or insecure environments, we offer, you know, live in big bunkered compounds with maybe very little interaction with mm -hmm. communities, etc. So maybe all of those factors are so the way that we've expanded um, is actually plays a role in the way that we've seen and the security of, of humanitarian workers and their acceptance. So really the push was to say, you know, the industry has expanded, it's become an right. industry. Um, there's a lot of aspects of the industry which I think are problematic. Um, and if we are going to look at the problems humanitarian organizations face, we should not only look on the outside, but we should also look on the inside. Uh, and, and for us, distinguishing between a shrinking space and expanding space was key for that internal right. reflection. No, and honest, to be honest, I had actually never thought about it that way until I was actually listening to, to, to the findings of your research. But I also know, and, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this, because, you know, I, I hear you when you say, you know, of course, it's, it has expanded. We are working in more areas we are working in conflict situations as well which does come with its own uh, challenges but at the same time we also see more attacks for example on humanitarian workers and there was a point in time when that really never used to to happen so what, what's your kind of take on that See, so what we argued was that it wasn't so much that attacks did happen. Yeah. It's true that more attacks are happening now, but more attacks are happening now with a lot more humanitarian organizations and a lot more humanitarian right. workers in conflict, in conflict zones. So, so in a way, comparing is a little bit right. difficult because we say, okay, you know, before it was happening less, but we were less exposed to those situations. And so now that we're more exposed to those situations, it's uh, it's understandable or, or, or it's a, it, you can explain why the right. attacks are increasing. So then the question could be more around not so much why the attacks are increasing, but why are the attacks taking right. place? And I think if we understand why the attacks are taking place, you know, and it could be for a variety of reasons, it could be because there's a lack of understanding of who the organizations are and there's a feeling that, you know, that they're somehow a threat. Um, it could be that, um, you know, the wrong place, the wrong time because of, 
poor security measures. I mean, it could be a host of factors that could be causing those those, those attacks. So for me, the question more is about, you know, how, why are those attacks happening and what actions can be taken to mitigate uh, the, the the risks of those attacks. Um, and, and I think the, the trying to build acceptance is key because um, right. often what we found is that the short-term approach and thinking is, you know, we'll bunker the, the humanitarian organizations and aid workers down into big compounds with high walls. And I think that just creates more, more barriers and separations uh, with the communities, with, you know, com- with community leaders, with armed groups, with governments, authorities, etc. And I think we need to start breaking down those barriers. And I think that requires... Um, you know, dialogue, it, inquire, it requires engagement uh, and it requires mutual understanding. And that takes time. Uh, and, uh, and I think that, you know, the, and, and the reality is that for most conflict contexts, I mean, whilst they're emergencies, they're protracted emergencies. I mean, you know, in contexts like Sudan or the Democratic Republic of Congo or, or Yemen, I mean, the UN operations have been there sometimes for decades. So I think, you know, they're, the, the idea that in a humanitarian emergency you can't you don't have the time to build those relationships I don't think is is correct and I think that we need to invest more in building those relationships uh, understanding the context that we are uh, and I think on the basis of that determine you know what what are the best measures to 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 keep you know humanitarian workers safe whilst at the same time you know being able to do the job that we're there to do which is to make sure that people are able to find relief and protection right. And um, maybe I'll just ask you, I, I know I could talk to you <laughs> about your research, you know, uh, for longer, but I'm going to try and wrap up on this point. But you also mentioned uh, the research a lot around um, perceptions, you know, and I think you've already talked to it a little bit, but maybe you can expand on it. But where really humanitarian aid is also perceived to be a Western uh, ideology, um, Western culture, interests and values, and then how that also affects or impacts uh, humanitarian space. Could you talk more about that? Sure. I mean, I, I think it's important to distinguish between humanitarian action as, you know, a centuries-old yeah. concept in terms of, you know, people helping each other. You know, and, and I think that that's not something new. It's common to all, all cultures, all environments, all countries, all communities. Um, I think what is perceived to yeah. be Western is the modern humanitarian uh, industry or, right. or system. And I think that, you know, and that's mainly because many of the organizations that work uh, in the area are originally Western organizations uh, or, or, or their history, has, they have evolved, you know, from different capitals in the, in the West. Um, most of the donors towards that humanitarian system uh, Western, uh, Western countries and Western donors that, that, that support. Um, and I think that that gives the, the perception that, you know, when we're working in different countries, that we're somehow very much Western, mm-hmm. Western influenced. And, um, and, and I don't think it's just a, a perception. I think it's also a, a reality. So I think, you know, trying to adjust that perception and change that reality, I think is, 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 is really important. And, and I think that's, 
um, again, you know, through through dialogue, through community engagement, and 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 I think that's where we need to to, to strengthen our work. I mean, we often talk about accountability to affected populations. So ultimately, you know, we want to listen to the communities that are affected in terms of you know what kind of support they want to 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 receive. You know, what are their perspectives on on on, on the assistance that we provide. You know, and, and what kind of solutions would they like to see to their to their to their situation? And I think we don't do enough of that. I think we talk about it a lot, um, but I think we, we we often don't do it enough in practice. And I think part of the reason why is that it's not just a, a technical exercise. Of how can I how can I you know do it better? You know, how can I do better? Have a better engagement strategy? You know, how can I do better focus group discussions? You know, no, it's because it's also it's also mm-hmm. about transferring power. It's about saying, okay, I don't decide what you know what I do in my program, even if I've been doing it for ten years. But it's the communities themselves that are going to decide. Um, and I think that that becomes a lot more difficult um, for an organization to to to. To assume and then implement in practice. So I think it's really about a, a power shift, and I think until that power shift happens, and we really put people at the centre of what we do, and you know, it's it's not an easy task, and and I, and I think you know it requires a lot of thinking, and, and I think there is a lot of thinking out there um, around the subject. But then until that happens, I think we're always going to be seen somehow as a, a, right. as a Western orientated kind of system or industry, um, and in different contexts that can have. Uh, a positive right now and I like you say you you make the point about transferring power uh, because I think at the crux of it is what it really comes down to you know like how do we help empower people local communities and authorities to actually be in the lead um, and also have agency which is another point at least I like to talk a lot about even when it comes to people being able to tell their own stories and define what their needs are, and then us being able to actually provide those needs, you know, and I know it's, it's extremely challenging because also we do have limited resources. We do have uh, challenges around operating in a conflict environment and all of these other challenges that we were speaking to. Um, I think this is a good moment for us to actually segue into talking about Season of Migration to the North by Tayeb Sali. And I'm glad you actually uh, chose this book, mostly because I haven't read it. And so now I've ordered it and I've added it on my ever-growing list of books to read, and I look forward to reading it. Um, So what is this story about? So, season uh, season migrations to the north uh, by Taib Saleh is uh, is a book in uh, set in uh, post colonial Sudan, um, and it's essentially about an unnamed narrator uh, and uh, another person called Mustafa Said, who both have different experiences of of, of traveling abroad, uh, mainly for for study purposes, um, and then returning back to Sudan. Um, and encountering issues mm-hmm. of identity and belonging, uh, and in a way, um, not really belonging to to either of those of those contexts, um, not belonging to the the country where they migrated to, um, but also when they come back, 
initially finding a sense of stability, rootedness, familiarity in their in their country, but then realizing that you know things are no longer the same in their experience. That also means that they are no longer the same. They're really struggling with with this issue of of, of identity and right and, and belonging. And um, maybe before we go deeper into it and ask you my other questions, maybe you could read an excerpt from from the book. Sure, I'd love to. Let me read the short expo which I have here. So, it was, gentlemen, after a long absence, seven years to be exact, during which time I was studying in Europe, that I returned to my people. I learned much and much passed me by, but that's another story. The important thing is that I returned with a great yearning for my people in that small village at the bend of the Nile. For seven years, I had longed for them, had dreamed of them, and it was an extraordinary moment when at last found myself standing amongst them. They rejoiced at having me back and made a great fuss. It was not long before I felt as though a piece of ice were melting inside of me, as though I were some frozen substance on which the sun had shone. That life warmth of the tribe which I had lost for a time in a land whose fishes die of the cold. My ears had become used to their voices, my eyes grown accustomed to their forms. Because of having thought so much about them during my absence, something rather like fog rose up between them and me the first instant I saw them. But the fog cleared and I awoke on the second day of my arrival in my familiar bed in the room whose walls had witnessed the trivial incidents of my life in childhood and the onset of adolescence. I listened intently to the wind that indeed was a sound well known to me, a sound which in our village possessed a merry whispering. The sound of the wind passing through palm trees is different from when it passes through fields of corn. I heard the cooing of the turtle dove. I looked through the window at the palm tree standing in the courtyard of our house and I knew that all was still well with life. I looked at its strong straight trunk, at its roots that strike down into the ground, at the green branches hanging down loosely over its top and I experienced a feeling of assurance. I felt not like a storm-swept feather, but like that palm tree, a being with a background, with roots, with a purpose. That's beautiful. And uh, as I was actually reading some of the reviews uh, about the book itself, uh, a lot of people talk about how beautiful the language itself is. It's like a song. It's very lyrical. Um, so what is it? in your perspective, that you learned about Sudan reading this book? I think um, one of the aspects about it is, is the setting. Um, so it's in the post-colonial Sudan. So it's, it's, it's after Sudan has gained independence and it's a time of, of change. Um, and I think that change in the context uh, is also being reflected in the change in the experiences that people are have. In that uh, in that context, so the sense of you know fast-paced change, you know political instability. Um, so then, when you know the characters of the bus um, travel abroad, and then they come back, even though and, and as I was reading in the expert, there's a sense of I return back and it's familiar and I'm rooted, etc. That soon right. you know begins to unravel and and begins to change. Um, and and I think you know in Sudan in that period, but in like many countries that were going through um, that post-colonial transition, is like you know it's it's a real time of of change and, and society relations was changed and governance was changing, um, and that's also having an impact on on the way of life from people living in the city to people living in the village. And in this case, 
um, the, the narrator returns to the village um, and, you know, and he finds that you know, mm-hmm. initially the village is the same, but then he soon finds out that it's actually quite, it's actually quite different. And, and he struggles with that, with that, with that difference. And, but for me, the, the book was, was important, not only because, you know, I, I could personally relate to, to, to some of the aspects of, of, you know, of, of coming from with parents from a different background. My, my father's Egyptian, my mother's from Colombia, uh, growing up uh, in different parts of, uh, of Europe uh, and then traveling back to, to, to the Middle East, but also to Latin America and, and, and also struggling with this idea of identity and belonging. Um, but also, I think it's a feature of so many humanitarian crises because in so many of these mm-hmm. crises, people are uprooted, um, sometimes within the country, sometimes uh, to, to countries abroad. Um, and, you know, during that displacement, you know, it's uh, often they, they struggle to, 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 to find belonging and understand mm-hmm. their, their place in these new societies or, or new places they have to call home. And then often when they return, and, and often they return after many, many years, you know, they also struggle with the idea of, uh, of, of belonging in, in, mm-hmm. in a context which is no longer the same. So, so, so really, I think this, the, the, the themes of migration, identity, belonging, uh, you know, over periods of time, I think is something that right. is, is, is very um, And the Mustafa, I think, that's one of the other main character. It ends up he's, he, he kind of, there's a way he treats women and I think he murders one or a few of them. Um, and also back in this small village um, where the, the, the story itself is that, you know, one of the women is being forced into marriage and she ends up committing suicide. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about that um, and perhaps, you know, what can we learn about that? Okay, so, I mean, so Mustafa Saeed spends time in the, in the UK studying uh, and, and one of the, the, the things he highlights is, you know, is the relationship he has with, with several women. And, you know, I think he, he plays on the idea that, you know, he's come from, you know, an African, he has Arab-African roots um, and that's somehow, you know, seen as exotic amongst, you know, population that maybe is not so used to engaging with, with, with people from that part of the world. Um, and, and in a way, you know, he uses that to kind of, you know, to, to, to enforce power dynamics over, over, these, over these women and often controlling these women. Um, and when he finds that in one of the relationships he can know there's resistance to that control, then you know he resorts to 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 to, to a murder of that of that of that person in very kind of passionate circumstances. Um, and you know upon his his return, you know one of the things that he he does is entrust you know his wife to. The unnamed narrator who, who they meet in the, in the village uh, when uh, when he passes away, um, and you know the for the unnamed narrator, um, the challenge is that you know he's no longer living in the village; he's living in the city, um, and that the, the there's someone from the village who's a lot older than the widow that wants to marry the the, the, the widow, and I think he he doesn't resist and he doesn't protect, even though he has feelings himself for for the widow um, and in the end 
you know, the, the widow is married to to this older gentleman in the um, in, in in the village, and you know, against uh, against her her will, and that also has a strong impact on the on the on, on the unnamed narrator. So, really, I think it's you know a, a reflection of. Um, I would say, you know, patriarchal society. It's uh, it's a reflection about power dynamics between men and women, um, and it's uh, a reflection, I think, of you know some of the the customs and practices which are a reflection of that patriarchy uh, uh, at the time, but also continue continue very much uh, continue very much today. And, and I think it, it raises some important questions around. Uh, around that relationship and 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 as a man you know how do you try to 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 address those 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 concerns and 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 the other point i picked up on was um because i so the story is post-colonialism and 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 of course the central government the north government in sudan is now you know in, in control they are governing their country um and there was, um, I think, a point around the corruption and perhaps mismanagement of resources that came with uh, the post-colonial era. And I don't know if that's something you picked up on that you could also speak to. Yes, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think for a lot of people in, uh, in, in, the, in that context of, of post-colonial Sudan, but I think also in other contexts, as well, I mean, part of the the, the wanting to migrate and you know, get a, right. an education abroad and being able to come back um, to your country was also to contribute to that process. And, and I think that you know a lot of the challenges at the time was around you know governance, around corruption, around mismanagement of resources, you know, around you know, identity, um, um, and you know, and and I think there's a lot of Mm-hmm. challenges in that post-colonial mm-hmm. period that remain today or the fact that they weren't resolved at the time you know has meant that there's a lot of you know a lot of conflicts today and, and the fact that you know the Sudan of, of, of 1969 is is different to the Sudan of today you know the, the two different countries yeah. in the sense that you know now there's South Sudan has, has, has had independence I think that you know it's, it's just a reflection of the, 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 the turbulence at the, at the time and and how that has a modern day impact. So um, I think definitely, you know, how the failure to address those issues and the impact it has today, um, I think is is key. And if we look at many of the humanitarian kind of contexts that we, we, we work on, I think it's important to look at the history and, and you will find that that, uh, that that colonial history and post-colonial history uh, will, will will have left its mark on what's happening. Yeah, there and the, a lot of bias as well. When I was reading it, at least um, not reading it, when I was reading some of the reviews of of of, of the book itself, um, I think Mustafa when he's he's abroad and the way he was perceived and described uh, also actually struck me. And I don't know if you remember any of that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you know he he arrived in a country was seen as to be different, was seen as to be kind of you know slightly exotic, and I think he drew the attention to you know people in the UK at, at a time where you know migration was right. not maybe as as large as it is today. 
um, the society was less multicultural, um, and therefore, you know, being different had maybe a slightly, you know, was perceived different, had a slightly different different meaning of coming from a different country than maybe it is today. I mean, now, you know, modern day uh, London, which is where Mustafa goes, you know, is a, is a very multicultural city. It's, uh, you know, there's people from all over the world. And, you know, it's, it's very common to meet people that, that, yeah. that are not from the city originally. And um, so I think, you know, I think it's it's also part of the, the reflection of the time where, you know, where, where migration wasn't so, so large and there was less people uh, abroad and, and I think that you know, that gave him a certain status which I think he he took advantage of um, and and you know with some very unfortunate outcomes so I was just saying like you know my final question on the book was really coming back to what you said earlier about uh, why one of the reasons why you enjoy working in the humanitarian sector so of course working with people um, but also speaking to the humanitarian principle of humanity, like this idea of we are all humans and how can we connect and have solidarity for each other as, as human beings. And so just trying to see, you know, are there elements in the book that really do this, that help us really understand the characters in this book, the fact that they are, you know, humans and help us to connect and be hopeful and all of these things. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's um, it's about how we how we see others and, and how we treat others, and and I think we often try we often focuses on the differences. You know, the person looks different, speaks a different language, she she looks, you know, she comes from a different country, etc. And, and I think you know, there's a, a thread that you know brings us all together, which is which is our humanity and our humanness. And, and I think if we can first acknowledge that that common aspect that we all have. Then I think it becomes easier to to celebrate the differences rather than kind of see that as a, as a barrier or a threat or, or or something that we need to resist against. And and I think for, for me the, the the humanitarian sector really helped brings that together because it's really about you know another human being in in, in a difficult situation uh, and how do you make sure you know provide the conditions for that person to 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 to, to support that person in, in that situation or to get out of that situation. And I think that if we can use that premise as our something that we take for our relationships and to, to day-to-day life, you know, I think that, you know, slowly, slowly we, we start to 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 move forward and, and and celebrate, you know, our our togetherness and our oneness as as, as a human race. Um, but also celebrate the, um, the the differences that that we have, which I think make us uh, make us richer. And I think for us, for me, reading the book, it's about how the experiences uh, of Mustafa and the narrator, um, you know, I think make them richer. You know, and they have a very difficult mm-hmm. experience based on that migration. They suffer with the belonging. But I also feel that that process is a necessary process in the sense that, um, you know, you once you expand your understanding, you expose yourself to different cultures, different identity, then there's always going to be questions and there's also going to be difficulties. But I think the end place is, 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 is a better one because I think it's more accepting of, of differences in different cultures. So if I look at, if we compare the UK 
during that period where maybe less of a multicultural city, uh, London, sorry, is less of a multicultural city. And then today, where it's a very multicultural city, I mean, I, I would say that London is a lot richer mm-hmm. place for what it is today and what it represents today. Now, that process was probably quite a painful process for transitioning from mm-hmm. one where, you know, the, it's less multicultural to a multicultural one, you know. London is a city mm-hmm. that has suffered uh, a lot of issues in terms of racist attacks and you know and uh, and, and, and and terrorist bombings and, and and you know and the fallout from that and and I think that those painful processes has helped you know make London what it is today and there's a lot more to do but I think you know if you right. take that example globally I think you know we can start thinking about how cultures and how people from different can start to connect uh, and I think that we need to find the issues that we have in common. And I think humanity is one of them uh, to help kind of you know, create that that sense of solidarity and that bonding. Uh, and yeah. and I think the lack of that is you know probably the reason why we have so many problems today. Yeah. No, and thank you. And my last question for you is: if there's one action someone who will listen to this conversation can take to help address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis, what would that action be for you? I would say don't be indifferent to, to human suffering. So when you see human suffering, when you hear of human suffering, you know, try to find out more what's happening and, and think about what you can do, even if it's like, you know, something small that can, that can help contribute to, to reducing that Right. Right. Thank you, Samia. This is my last question for you. Do you have any questions for me? No, that's it. Just thank you for for having me on your podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Samir on Saha Stories and Humanitarian Action. If you've enjoyed this conversation, like, comment, share and subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'd like to thank Jamal Swift, my co-producer, and the Nomadic Band for the music. Thank you.